Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. I set out to find every person who had ever met Kim Jong-un. I went and met several times with the Japanese sushi chef who had worked in the royal household uh, while Kim Jong-un was a boy. When the sushi chef met Kim Jong-un for the first time, they were uh, lined up to greet the two little generals, Kim Jong-un and his older brother. He said that uh, Kim Jong-chol was relatively forthcoming and shook his hand and acted normally, but Kim Jong-un, like, stared into his eyes and, like, tried to stare down this 40-year-old man and, like, assert himself over him, which he said was very odd at the time. So, Anna, as the leader of North Korea, what are Kim Jong-un's goals? What are his objectives? What does he want? He wants one thing. He wants to stay in power. You know, these autocrats, dictators by nature, are a paranoid bunch. He's constantly thinking about how he keeps his position. The nuclear program, the executions, all of that is designed about maintaining his leadership of North Korea and his family's plum position there. Can you envision a set of circumstances by which he is willing to give up his nuclear program? I cannot. I can't imagine him feeling secure enough to give them up. I can see him trading away some of his capability in the course of this process if things go well. But also, you know, it's very early days. You know, maybe down the line, you know, anything is possible. But, but right now I can't see it. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for the Washington Post. Previously, she was the Post-Tokyo bureau chief. She was also the correspondent in Seoul for the Financial Times. She is widely known as one of the most authoritative journalists writing on North Korea. She has visited North Korea a dozen times. Anna last week published a book, The Great Successor, on North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. I just sat down with Anna to talk about her new book and all things North Korea. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. 
So, Anna, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So your book, The Great Successor, was published last week. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. It's a must-read, I think, for anyone interested in North Korea. And it has one of the best subtitles (laughs) that I've ever seen, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of brilliant comrade Kim Jong-un. It sounds like they actually wrote that. Yeah, well, all, those are all words that the North Koreans have said at one stage, and we just took a little liberty in arranging them in that order. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'd love to start with something that struck me right off the bat, which is the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. It's bright red with a caricature of Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. Why that design? Yeah, so this was the publisher's uh, design and their decision based on what they know about the book world, and I don't. But I think it kind of, I mean, the whole thesis of the book is that he's not a cartoon character, that he is somebody that we ought to be taking seriously. Having said that, there is something wacky about him. I think this this taps into the bizarre side of it. So you reconstruct his past all the way up to the present, and I want to get into all of that in detail. Before doing that, I want to ask you a couple questions about the book. And I think the first one is, what drew you to writing about him? I had been covering North Korea for some years, and I did not think that Kim Jong-un could do it, that he would be able to perpetuate the system which should, by rights, have collapsed many years before. I mean, partly because it was so such an anachronistic system, but also because he was so young and inexperienced, and I couldn't imagine how he would have the wherewithal to do it and how the old guard who'd served his grandfather and his father and is still very much there in Pyongyang, how they would tolerate it. So partly it was just like this fascination of how had he managed to do it. The first time I went back to Pyongyang under his reign, I was astonished to see this showcase capital, and it is a showcase capital, but it was looking so much better. He had managed to give the showcase a makeover. So I wanted to go and report out and show how he had actually managed to defy all these expectations. So how did you go about writing the book? Where did you go? Who did you talk to, to the extent that you can share that with us? How long did it take? You know, how did you go about this? Yeah, it took about two years. I set out to find every person who had ever met Kim Jong-un. So I was living in Japan. I went and met several times with the Japanese sushi chef who had worked in the royal household uh, while Kim Jong-un was a boy. I found his aunt and uncle who had been his guardians in Switzerland while he was at school there and who had defected to the United States. And I convinced them to talk to me. It's the only time they've ever talked on the record uh, about Kim Jong-un and what he was like as a child. But then, you know, after, and you know, there are some people in Switzerland still who have met him, the teachers, the school classmates. But after that, after he returns to North Korea when he's 16 years old, the trail really goes cold. Uh, You know, he went into the North Korean equivalent of West Point and then seemed to be on this kind of dictatorial apprenticeship for 10 years uh, while he was training to be his father's successor. So after that, it became more difficult. But I did try to find anybody who had met him after he took over. You know, diplomats had shaken his hand one time and things. No encounter was too trivial as I looked for clues into this man. But then in 2018, it suddenly became a whole lot easier because, you know, it seemed like everybody had met him. So did you travel to North Korea to research the book? 
I was traveling to North Korea in the course of my job anyway, but the whole time I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to write this and I was looking for insights uh, into him and to not, you know, not so much him because obviously access is very limited to say the least, but into how the city, Pyongyang, the home of the regime had changed, you know, the kinds of changes he had made with the economy to show how he had retained control. So, yeah, there were a lot of clues to be gleaned from Pyongyang. And when you went to North Korea while writing the book, did they know you were writing a book? They did not know I was writing a book, but they knew that I was the Washington Post correspondent and I was there to report for the Washington Post. I've always been upfront about what I'm doing and who I am. So So what is it like to travel there as a reporter? It is so frustrating because we're so excited. It's difficult to get into North Korea. So when you get there, you're very pleased to be able to go in and very hopeful that you'll be able to get some insight into how the system operates. And then once you're there, you're frustrated at every turn because, uh, you know, I have been to Kim Il-sung's fake birthplace seven times. I have never gotten any news out of it. You know, like it's very difficult to find new things or to find out really what the truth is. They, they just want you to see the, the myths. Yeah, you mentioned that you have usually have two minders, a, mm-hmm. a good minder and a bad minder. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so there's always, I mean, North Koreans always travel everywhere in pairs because they need to keep an eye on each other as well as to keep an eye on me. So there is always, yeah, two minders. Sometimes it's a driver and a minder or whatever. But yeah, I had a good cop and a bad cop. And one of them his job was to say no to every request. And I tried to make my request reasonable. It was like, can I interview an economics professor at a university and things? And it was always no, no, no. And then there was one guy who was more jovial. And uh, yeah. Do you have the same minders each time so it's possible to build rapport? Or no, no, I never have the same minders for that exact reason. They don't want us to build a rapport with them. Yeah, interesting. So you've traveled there many times, I think a dozen times. Mm-hmm. What's the most striking thing that, that you've ever seen? Oh, the most striking thing. Memorable, Uh, most striking. What what are the things that really stand out to you about your travels there? I think, you know, we see so much about North Korea and so many pictures and things. And we know that the country is very poor, but there are many places that are very poor. The thing that surprises me and that feels palpable when you're there is kind of how afraid people are. You, You can feel that people, they don't... If they see a foreigner or an outsider walking towards them, you know, they'll cross the street or look down. They don't want anything to do with you because it's just so dangerous. So, you know, as a reporter, my job is to go out and talk to people. I never try to talk to people in North Korea because I am simply endangering those people. I am, um, you know, they, the risk you put them under. Yeah, the risk I put them under. I, I won't get anything from them. I will jeopardize them. The minders and everybody else around will report it. So I get my real reporting from North Korea from outside the country, from people who have just escaped, you know, a week before and are living and hiding in China or somewhere. So, Anna, I want to jump into the book itself. Mm-hmm. And I want to start with its protagonist, Kim Jong-un. Broadly speaking, how would you describe him as a person? He is a very ruthless and shrewd person. He, you know, when he came in, there was this tendency to view him like a joke, like a cartoon character, you know, everybody from John McCain to President Trump calling him some version of crazy. But he is not crazy. He has acted in a way that is very calculated and rational to be able to hold on to power there. And many of the things he has done have been very brutal, like having people executed. But that kind of behavior makes sense if you're a totalitarian autocrat trying to keep a hold of power. 
one of the things I looked at, you know, I looked at a lot at his childhood and the kind of uh, upbringing he had, and he had such a dysfunctional, abnormal childhood. He was cloistered onto this compound in Pyongyang or other royal residences around the country. He didn't have any relationship with his other, like, half-siblings. He only knew his older brother and younger sister. So he didn't have a chance to act normally with other children to play. He didn't go to school. He had tutors at home. So he didn't socialize, really, in a way, or didn't learn to play nice in a way that other, you know, normal children did. So looking at it, I think it would have been very difficult for him to grow up kind of any other way than he did. So how did that, those early parts of his childhood end up shaping him, do you think? I mean, he has been used to being treated like a little demigod from the earliest age. On his eighth birthday, he was presented with a a military, a general's uniform, complete with gold buttons and epaulettes and things. And he was announced as his father's successor then. And there were real generals at that birthday party who were saluting him and bowing to him and deferring to him from that age. So as his aunt told me, like from that day on, it was impossible for anybody to treat him normally because he had this sense of entitlement and everybody else around him was had been told that he would be inheriting this family dynasty. You tell an interesting story about the Japanese sushi chef and that moment, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's right. When the sushi chef met uh, Kim Jong-un for the first time, he they were uh, lined up to, in a like a receiving line to greet the two little generals, Kim Jong-un and his older brother. And he said that uh, Kim Jong-chol, the oldest son of that side of the family, was relatively forthcoming and shook his hand and acted normally. But Kim Jong-un we, like stared into his eyes and like tried to stare down this 40-year-old man and like assert himself over him, which he said was very odd at the time. And then he spends this time in Switzerland, about five years, right? Mm -hmm. What is that like for him and how did that shape him? Yeah, I mean, in some ways he was living a great lifestyle there and that he was like any kind of like spoiled expat kid. He was going off to Paris, to Disneyland. He was swimming in the French Mediterranean and going to Italy and eating pizza and doing all these, uh, enjoying all of these benefits of living in Europe. And they clearly had money to fund the children's lifestyle there. But at the same time, he was living a very normal existence compared to what he was living in Pyongyang, where he did live in a palace and was treated in this very deferential way. Once he got to Switzerland, he was posing as the son of North Korean diplomats. He was going to an ordinary school. He struggled in school, partly because of the language difficulties. And he stuck together with other immigrant kids there. Uh, They were his main friends. So it was not a particularly fun experience for him, I think. So many people thought when he came to power that he would be a different kind of North Korean leader because of this formative experience in a liberal democracy. I concluded the exact opposite was the case in that his experiences in Switzerland would have reinforced to him that if it wasn't for this system that he grew up in North Korea, you know, if he was out in the real world, he wouldn't be special at all. He'd be normal. He'd be nobody. You know, he would not be fated as this little demigod like he was used to. So you dedicate a lot of research in the book to Kim Jong-un, but you also take a look at his family and ancestors. And I ask you a couple of questions about them, maybe starting with his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. Talk about him a little bit and the impact that he may have had on Kim Jong-un. 
Yes, so Kim, jo- Kim Il-sung was the founding president of North Korea, installed by the Soviets after the uh, end of World War II. And he is very much associated with, even today, with good times in North Korea, that North Korea was relatively prosperous back then. The economy was bigger than South Korea, had strong benefactors on the Soviet Union and in China. Uh, so even now you'll find escapees from North Korea who will think fondly or remember fondly Kim Il-sung. But he started this personality cult, this you know propaganda that went way beyond anything that the Soviets or Mao Zedong in China ever did and created this myth around the family that they were they had this divine provenance coming from a, a mythical mountain in North Korea called Mount Pekdu. So he started the system and very much wanted it to pass down the family line. Uh, it went to his son, Kim Jong-il, who was a very different kind of person. He was quite introverted and did not seem to... Uh, enjoy what his lot in life there. He didn't have the charisma. He did not have the charisma. Then along comes Kim Jong-un, number three. He's very much a carbon copy of Kim Il-sung. Part of that is by design. He's really tried to, like the weight gain and the haircut and the outfits and even his glasses and things is all very much vintage Kim Il-sung because he wants to remind people of the good times in North Korea and remind them of this provenance which gives him his legitimacy. But it's striking how similar he is in personality to his grandfather. He's very extroverted and gregarious, charismatic, and how different he is from from Kim number two, Kim Kim Jong-il, who did not... Uh, he spoke in public only one time in 17 years, and that was one single sentence. So that's pretty savvy for a young man to think about playing to his people that way. Yeah, it is. I mean, part of the thing I wanted to try to figure out is how does he know how to do this stuff? Like, is it innate? Did he just absorb it growing up in the system? Did he have advisors to tell him, you know, this? And it's 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 still not clear. But what is clear is that he has proven much more canny than anybody ever expected. Do we know anything about the kind of relationship he had with his grandfather? They, I guess Kim Jong-un was about 10 when Kim Il-sung died. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he probably met him. That He was not a secret like Kim Jong-nam was. But uh, there is no photograph of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-un together or no photograph that's ever been made public. And we would expect it to be made public because of the strong family relationship. And uh, through the course of my reporting, I discovered that, you know, this is one of the reasons why Kim Jong-un disliked his uncle, Jang Song-tek, so much. This is the uncle he had executed at the end of 2013. He thought this uncle had been an impediment to him having that photo with his grandfather, having proper access to his grandfather, and had kind of delegitimized him in a way. And this was the execution that surprised everybody because the uncle was the one who was supposed to guide him. That's right. The uncle was supposed to be the regent, yeah, keeping keeping tabs and helping him through. And then what about his relationship with his father, Kim Jong-il? What do we know about that? I mean, he did spend quite a lot of time with his father growing up. Kim Jong-nam and his cousin who lived with him and kind of as his sister, they were complaining a lot that Kim Jong-il was never there in their royal household because he was off with this next family. They were quite jealous of that. So, yeah, Kim Jong-un did have a relationship with his father growing up and, yeah, seems to have been taken under his wing as the inheritor. So, Anna, a couple more questions about his relatives. 
So his siblings, two in particular that I'd like to ask you about, one is his sister, Kim Yo-jong, mm-hmm. and the other is Kim Yong-nam. Could you talk about both of those and the way he interacted with them, the way he saw them, and particularly with regard to, to Kim Jong-nam, you know, what led to his death ultimately? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kim Jong-nam was the firstborn son of Kim Jong-il, which according to the Confucian hierarchies of Korean culture, he should have been the successor. He should have taken over. But he did not, partly, I think, because of his mother and Kim Jong-un's mother. They had very strong influences. But Kim Jong-nam's mother went to Moscow when he was only three years old and was kind of out of the picture for the rest of uh, Kim Jong-nam's life there. Whereas Kim Jong-un's mother was very active there in Pyongyang. She was like de facto first lady, was really agitating for her sons too, to be the successors, one of them to be the successors to this regime. So Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-nam had no relationship at all, as far as I can tell. It's not certain that they ever even met each other. But still, Kim Jong-nam, as the firstborn son of this bloodline, which is very important in Korean culture, could claim the right to be the leader of North Korea. So I think Kim Jong-un viewed him as a real rival, as somebody who could pose a threat to his rule, even though Kim Jong-nam showed no interest whatsoever in becoming the leader of North Korea. And that may have been, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Kim Jong-un decided to have his brother assassinated in very gruesome fashion in Kuala Lumpur Airport. During the course of my reporting, I was told that Kim Jong-nam had been an informant for the CIA and had been providing information to American intelligence operatives in Southeast Asia. He'd been meeting them in Malaysia and Singapore to provide uh, information on what he knew about the regime. And he did, you know, even though he had fallen out with his younger brother, uh, he still did have good contacts in the regime. He still met people at a high level, so could be thought to have reasonable intelligence. And if Kim Jong-un found out about that, that would be another reason to... It sure would. ...to move against Yeah, him. yeah. So he is very much at a distance from Kim Jong-un, as opposed to his sister, Kim Yo-jong, who's younger than him. And she is very much, uh, you know, playing a supportive role to her brother, making sure that his leadership, everything runs smoothly. She is like his executive assistant, choreographer and publicist all in one. So we've seen her at all of the summits clearly working. Like she is the one who brings the pen out of her bag to so he can sign the agreements and she's the one making sure everything runs smoothly. So... Her job is to make sure that her brother looks as good as possible. So he comes, Kim Jong-un comes back from Switzerland and he begins the grooming process in a number of different ways. And then his father dies and he becomes the leader. And as you said, you thought he might not be able to sustain this. There were many, many people who thought that way, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. Why was he able to do that? What did you conclude at the end of the day? I concluded he was able to do it by being very strategic and having a game plan, I think, from the get-go. He laid out very early on this two-track strategy, Byung-jin policy, that he wanted to follow, also something that his grandfather had started, but had fallen by the wayside. So he very deliberately focused, first of all, on the nuclear program as a way to show a sign of strength perhaps as a way to placate the military hardliners who may have had misgivings about this person who was supposedly a marshal yet had not spent any time at all in the military. 
and as a way to fend off any threat from the United States. And so he made astonishing progress in his nuclear program. You know, there was a lot of laughing at the idea, you know, when they were announcing that they would develop a hydrogen bomb and they were building an intercontinental ballistic missile. But they did it. Uh, You know, there's credible proof that, that they did it. And so I think that was very definitely by design. And then now he is turning to the second part of that two-track project, which is economic development, that he is trying to grow the economy around the country a little bit so that he can say to the people of North Korea, who he does not care about whatsoever, that none of this is designed to raise the living standards, you know, for any good reasons of people of North Korea. It's all about him staying in power. But he wants to be able to say to them, look, your life is getting better under my great leadership. So how has he changed as a ruler during his time in power? I think he's become much more confident. We have seen him. uh, I, I, I was in Pyongyang in 2016 for the Workers' Party Congress, which is the first time in a generation one of these Communist Party meetings had been called. And I just watched him standing there on a stage in front of three and a half thousand top brass and top party officials holding forth for, you know, well over an hour talking about uh, his plans for North Korea. And he laid out a five-year economic plan, which had not been done in North Korea for a long time, but I also thought was very bold because he was really staking his reputation on this. He was owning this policy. And so if it didn't work, he could be held accountable for it. So I think he has really grown into this role and is uh, able to portray, you know, strength and confidence and also able to like turn on the charm, you know, after all of these years of threats and saber rattling and things, we saw him trying to appear as this benevolent dictator, you know, coming out into the outside world in 2018 and trying to present himself as a totally reasonable, responsible leader of a nuclear-armed state and somebody who should be viewed as an equivalent, a peer of the president of the United States and China and South Korea. Is the focus on the economy paying off? Are living standards getting better? They are in general, a tiny, tiny bit. Like For the majority of North Koreans, life is still extremely hard. Uh, you know, many people do not have electricity. They do not have um, running water. They may not be starving, but they are malnourished. You know, it's unusual for people outside the big cities to get meat or other so- forms of protein. So life is still very difficult uh, for many people. But because he has tolerated the growth of private markets and private enterprise in North Korea, people are now much more than ever allowed to be entrepreneurial, allowed to make their own money and to be independent of the state. So thanks to Kim Jong-un simply tolerating this, not actually doing anything to encourage it, people are able to earn their own money and earn their own way to a better standard of living slightly. So you actually talk about the class system in North Korea, and I found that interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, North Korea has this very highly structured class system called Songbun, where the society is broken up into three main categories. The people who are loyal to the regime, the people who are wavering in the middle, and then the people considered hostile. And they are people who like may come from Christian backgrounds or uh, have links to Japan or have collaborated with Japanese you know, many generations ago during the colonial period. 
And so those people are... So gen- they may not actually be hostile, but they're part of a group that yes. is considered a risk. And they are consigned that for life. And in North Korea, it's very easy to move down the classes, to run afoul of the system. It's very difficult to work your way up the system in terms of, like, political standing. And everything is really decided according to the system. Like, the people who are considered loyal, they go to Kim Il-sung University, the Harvard of North Korea. They, you know, get the best jobs. They live well. You know, they're the ones who get the food if there is food to go around. So... Everything is dependent on your political loyalty to and this you're regime. And you're born into this class system. You are system. born into this class system. So, Anna, as the leader of North Korea, what are Kim Jong-un's goals? What are his objectives? What does he want? He wants one thing. He wants to stay in power. That is his number one goal. When he you know, wakes up every morning, how does he maintain his grip on this regime and his family's position at the top of the society? You know, these autocrats, dictators by nature, are a paranoid bunch. He's constantly thinking about how he keeps his position. So we think everything that he does, the nuclear program, the executions, the lavishing uh, riches on the elite who keep him in power, now the economic improvements. North Korea doesn't like to call them reforms because that implies there's something wrong with the system. All of that is designed about maintaining his leadership of North Korea and his family's plum position there. Why is the nuclear program so important to that? Right, because, I mean, because he came in, he was so unqualified. He didn't seem to have any qualification for the job apart from being the scion of this family. But having this nuclear program, you know, is the ultimate weapon for the military, right? The military who may have had misgivings about him must have been thrilled to suddenly have the bomb. And he's fated them a lot. They lavish banquets and concerts where they are treated like rock stars in North Korea. But also, and this is something I think is often really missed about North Korea, the nuclear program is a source of immense national pride for ordinary North Koreans even amongst those who detest the regime. And there's one person who really sticks in my mind. He was a a science student at a university in North Korea, and he absolutely hated this regime. When Kim Jong-un took over, he knew he had to escape because he just couldn't tolerate a third generation. But he described to me learning about the nuclear program in his physics class at university and feeling so proud that North Korea had been able to develop this program Uh, that South Korea and Japan had not been able to. Interesting. Why do you think Kim Jong-un came to the negotiating table when he did? Why do you think he reached out when he did? I think it's a combination of two things. Partly it's because, as the North Koreans announced at the end of 2017, they had completed their missile program. He felt that he had gone as far as he needed to in terms of demonstrating this nuclear missile capability. But also I think the maximum pressure campaign really did have an impact on on him because the Chinese who share this long border with North Korea and other, you know, 90% of North Korea's trade goes to or through China, the Chinese really started implementing sanctions like they had never done before because they were so worried that President Trump was serious about raining down fire and fury on North Korea The Chinese wanted to show that sanctions could work. So they enforced the sanctions very strictly at the border, and that began to hurt North Korea. Yeah, really for the first time. For the first time, yeah. And I think the combination of those two things is what brought Kim Jong-un So one is is coming to the table from a position of strength, having the deterrence 
of a nuclear program and the other is from weakness, right? From the exactly. sanctions biting. Yeah. Interesting. So here's the here's the ultimate question, mm-hmm. right? Which is can you envision a set of circumstances by which he is willing to give up his nuclear program or not? I cannot. I can't imagine him feeling secure enough to give them up. You know, he's invested so much in this program and so much of his legitimacy rests on these weapons. And also remember when he was taking over, the Arab Spring was happening. He saw Muammar Gaddafi, who struck a deal with the United States to give up his nuclear weapons, dragged from a ditch and killed. So I think this really has been seared in his mind. And that's why, to this day, the North Koreans really object very strongly when John Bolton talks about the Libya model, Mm. because that doesn't hold any attraction for them. So I can't see a situation where he would be willing to give everything up. I can see him trading away some of his capability in the course of this process, if things go well. But also, you know, it's very early days. You know, maybe down the line, you know, anything is possible. But but right now I can't see it. So how do you think he thinks about U.S. policy and where the U.S. is coming from? And how do you think he thinks about President Trump? Yeah. The North Koreans, like pretty much everybody else, was very puzzled by President Trump and his way of doing business when he came in. You know, they didn't understand what the tweets meant. You know, it was tweets, it's Twitter policy and things. So, I mean, that's no different from China or South Korea or Japan or any other of these countries. But the North Koreans have really studied Donald Trump a lot. And there's a lot out there for them to crib from, right? They've read the art of the deal. Uh, I know that they have, people in North Korea have read Fire and Fury, this expose about inside Trump's White House. Uh, We know they listen to Intelligence Matters. You do? Yeah. It's fascinating. And then they have also, uh, you know, I've heard about North Koreans have attended talks with Americans and have demonstrated this encyclopedic knowledge of President Trump's tweets. They, They pay attention to everything. And you can see that they've kind of figured out what pushes his buttons. You know, it's no coincidence that Kim Yong-chol, the emissary, arrived in the White House Oval Office with this huge envelope because he knew that Trump would love that, and he did. So they have really studied him and tried to figure out how to interact with him in a way that gives them an advantage because they know far more about Donald Trump than than the Americans know about Kim Jong-un. So Anna, you've been terrific with your time. Just a couple more questions. One is, Are you optimistic, pessimistic about U.S.-North Korean relations? You know, after all these years covering North Korea, you know, I should know better than to be optimistic. You know, you're usually right if you're pessimistic about North Korea. But I do, you know, before the Singapore summit, I did feel quite optimistic. And I retain a little bit of that to this day because I think Kim Jong-un is a very unconventional North Korean leader in that he has been very bold and audacious and like, being willing to advertise that he's traveling outside the country and meeting Donald Trump in Hanoi before it even happened. You know, that was very risky, especially since Hanoi was a disaster. But also the United States has a very unconventional leader and somebody who's been willing to do things differently from before. So maybe, you know, they can figure, you know, as unlikely as it seems, maybe they can figure out some way to break this deadlock. Because, you know, what I do know is that the traditional way of dealing with North Korea you know, 30 years of doing the same thing has not worked. Right. So let's try something different. So the second question is, what do you think he would think of your book? Kim Jong-un? Yeah. 
I think he would not like it. Uh, I did not write it for him to like it. Um, but, you know, even though I have given him a lot of credit for his savvy and the way that he has managed to hold on to power seven and a half years on, but I also, you know, have outlined the way he's done it, the brutality, um, the yeah, the ruthlessness, and, yeah, I expect that they will not like it. Yeah. And then the last question, I find it interesting that you're – book has 16 chapters, but you break it into three sections. So you break it into the apprenticeship, Mm -hmm. the consolidation, and the confidence, Mm -hmm. which we've talked about all three of those, right? And I'm wondering if you wrote this book 10 to 15 years from now, would there be another section and what might it be? I know that's a tough question. That is a tough question. Wow. You know, it's so hard to predict anything about North Korea. And, you know, I start the book by saying I'm writing this because my predictions were yeah, wrong. Yeah. Right? Well, I used to work on it a long, long time ago, and yeah. I thought it wasn't going to last another five years. So. I mean, yes. yes. I mean, you, there are declassified CIA yes. files from the 60s yeah. giving it five yes. years, right? Yes. You know, anything is possible. But I can, I can see a situation where Kim Jong-un has managed to hold on. Uh, he does not seem to be any, but anything but in control of the regime right now. But who knows what could happen? You know, look at him. I think the biggest risk to North Korea is his health. He is like very unhealthy for a 35-year-old. And if he's really worried about staying in power, you know, he should quit smoking and start exercising. Anna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, The book is The Great Successor, and the author is Anna Fifield. Great. Thank you for having me. That was Anna Fifield. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.